all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is your Southern Remedy program where you can call in at any time during the hour to ask a question about your health or the health of someone in your family or maybe it's a friend. Uh, we typically don't answer questions about animals, so sorry about that. But uh, if it's a human question, we're all in for that. Any kind of ages, any kind of question, maybe it's a new symptom, a new medication, a new side effect, or maybe something that you just don't quite understand. Or you can always reach us by email. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, we got some hot and cold days here in the South. That's right. This is what winter's... Uh, is sort of like. So it can be uh, 70, 80 degrees. Maybe you're new to Mississippi. This is what you can look forward to for as long as you stay here. And uh, who knows what we'll have. But I do hope everybody had a good uh, holiday season to date. Uh, again, I know it's a stressful time for a, a lot of people. And um, taking care of yourself and realizing that can be the key to, to navigating it well. Um, and then also thinking about what's going to happen after that holiday season. So what does that mean? I know the New Year's just right around the corner um, in a few days. And a lot of people will think about New Year's resolutions, of course. And uh, there's lots of things that you could choose to uh, improve your health. And we talk about a lot of that on here, particularly with prevention of ways to avoid certain things. Or even if you do have some chronic uh, um, medical conditions, you can always do some things better. Weight loss is always one that sort of floats to the top of the list. Um, I would say as you're picking something, try to do something simple. Um, the, the best ways to change behaviors, to change habits, to change your lifestyle is to do it incrementally, meaning you just choose one thing at a time, and to try to do that for about four to six weeks. That's a great time period. It really allows your body and your mind to adjust to those new habits. And uh, maybe it's something as simple as, um, you know, giving yourself some time away from things that stress you. Maybe it's uh, something to change about what you eat or your exercise patterns. And it's amazing what sort of small things can do. I know a lot of people are amazed sometimes if they say, you know what, I don't think I'm going to have um, carbonated soft drinks that have sugar in them. I, even if they've you know been drinking them once a day or so, they'll say, I just I think I'm going to cut those out to maybe once every couple of weeks or so. 
just doing that one thing, that's a lot of extra calories that you get in that. So you would be surprised if you just did that and didn't do anything else. Do a little experiment on yourself and see what the uh, see what the results are. But that's a great way to enter the new year. It's interesting to me the times that we pick to do things like that. So typically traumatic events in our life, a death of, of uh, somebody that's near to us, a diagnosis of a chronic illness, um, a birth in the family um, or uh, marriage, um, those kinds of things can prompt us to change uh, certain things in our life to get better. And I know a lot of people will come into my office and they say, well, I know exercise doesn't work or I know that eating better really doesn't work and there's probably a pill that can do that better. You know what? Really, there's not. And um, there's some things that are marvels about what we can do, but particularly about prevention. There's just not a whole lot that comes close to doing a lot of things together, eating that healthy diet, getting regular exercise, uh, getting plenty of quality sleep at night, and uh, and having really rich social connections in your life. Those things can really uh, decrease the rate of so many different things, whether it's cardiovascular disease related, whether it's stroke related, uh, whether it's dementia or depression related. All those things together is the right recipe. If you want a recipe from Dr. Jimmy, I'm not much of a cook, but that's one for, from a health health standpoint that you might do to improve your health or the health of those in your family. So good morning, Dr. Jimmy. I, you know, as we close out the year here, I thought it, it, it would be appropriate that I ask one of my off-the-wall questions. So, Of course. <laughs> what kind of a, a end of the year would it be if we didn't have that, Kevin? That's Kevin Farrell, our producer. So I was watching football uh, this weekend, and on my favorite team, one of the players caught the pass, and then uh, the defender kind of hit his knee with his helmet, and he, you know, got tackled, and he got up, and he sort of limped off the field. Well... It just turned out he tore his ACL. So I guess mm-hmm. I'm wondering maybe a primer on the, the structure of your knee. So there must be enough ligaments to where if you tear one, you can still walk. And it seemed like it would be, well, I guess they're pro athletes, so they're used to it. But it looked like it would have been more painful than he was making it yeah. out to be. Yeah, that's a great question. And a lot of people say, well, I understand if you can tear a ligament, why it wouldn't hurt like that. So there are four main ligaments and two cushions in your knee. And uh, those ligaments, their job is to hold, they attach from bone to bone, and they basically keep the knee in position through its motion. Now, the knee doesn't have much side-to-side motion in the joint. That's more of at the hip level or the ankle level. But um, its job, of course, is to flex and extend through full range of motion. So in doing that, those ligaments help hold it in place so that it is moving on that what we call the articular surface. So that's where your femur, which is the top bone in your leg and your upper leg, and then the tibia, which is the biggest bone in your, your lower leg, they can move together. And then there's, of course, your kneecap, your patella, that is really... It's uh, it's a bone that is attached to the muscles on the top of your leg, your quadriceps, and then there is a ligament between it and your um, your um, tibia on the lower leg. So it's actually a bone that's within that apparatus, sort of muscular apparatus. So what happens when you when you overstress the knee, like getting hit at a certain angle? Depending on the angle that you are uh, exerting that force from, 
And a lot of that has to do with is the foot planted? Is there, Are you turning while you do that? Then that can tear one of those four ligaments. And that is the ACL is one of them. The PCL, that's the anterior cruciate ligament. The PCL is the posterior cruciate ligament. Those two ligaments really help to keep the knee stabilized in a forward and backward motion. So if you're looking straight ahead, they resist that force on the lower leg that pushes the lower leg back or pushes the lower leg forward. And if you have too much pressure, uh, particularly if you're getting the classic one is the the you know football player plants and he turns to get the ball, so he's putting a little bit of rotational force on the knee, and he gets hit from the outside with a helmet to the knee or a shoulder pad to the knee, and that typically is an ACL tear because of the direction of the force. Now, you have two other ligaments, the MCL, the medial collateral ligament, and the LCL, the lateral collateral ligament. And those help hold those two bones together on either side of your knee. So one's on the inside, one's on the outside. When those tear, if it's particularly if it's just a mild tear, mild to moderate tears, and that's common, uh, particularly if you stretch, that would be like if you got hit from the side, if you were standing up and you got hit from the side and your knee sort of bows in or bows out. That's what those ligaments help to to prevent. Um, then those are pretty common, and those heal up pretty well without any surgery most of the time. It's pretty rare to, for an MCL or LCL ligament to tear. PCL is sort of hard to to uh, tear, and it's usually a, a car accident type injury. So it's where the dashboard gets sort of pushed back into your leg, your lower leg, and pushes the lower leg back against the upper leg. So that's one that we don't see as much as. Um, it's not as common. Well, as you can imagine, depending on the force, you can damage a couple of those ligaments at the same time. So I already said the MCL and the LCL are fairly common to tear those. It's not as big a deal. ACL, if you tear that, uh, if it's a partial tear, it's just not going to do its job as well. If it's a full tear, then you got to get that repaired. Um, because what happens after that is the knee is unstable meaning that it's going to move in ways against that on that articular surface in ways that it is not designed to do, and that can set you up for arthritis. The other thing, and you can tear, typically if you tear an ACL, it doesn't have a whole lot of pain fibers in that or PCL. Most of the time, if it's a pure ACL tear, um, you'll feel a pop, and then that's, and you'll feel an instability in the knee. If it's an MCL, those fibers, when they tear, the, you can feel that a little bit more. Same thing with the LCL. Sometimes they're together, though. Um, you can have one or more ligaments that are torn together. And then the meniscus tear, that's those cushions between the upper bone and the lower bone of your leg. When those get torn, it sort of catches and uh, when you're walking, it's like, oh, my knee's just sort of locked up, and then it, you feel a pain, and then it uncatches. It's sort of those pieces sort of flip, flip, uh, flip-flop back and forth. So that's really the pain part of it. And that's why sometimes you can have a ligament tear like an ACL, and it's not that big a deal. The orthopedic, you may have some swelling in that knee, but not a whole lot of pain. Now, the swelling, if it gets bad enough, that can, that can uh, cause some pain, too. So there may be some bleeding in there. A lot of time, the orthopedic surgeon will say, you know what? Pretty stable knee. Let's just see how it's going to do. We'll reexamine it, maybe get an MRI later. But that is the question. Now, athletes are trained to do all kinds of things. And the thing about athletes are is they have a lot of peripheral muscles around that joint that can help stabilize it, too. And not just the knee, but other ones. And 
anybody who works out symmetrically to do that, you can take a lot of that force off the joint. That's why, you know, you can jump up 10 feet in the air and then come back down and then have a 260-pound lineman to land on you. That's a lot of pressure on that knee. But if the muscles are developed around there, they can help to absorb some of that. Then that, of course, takes a lot of training. But it's also why, you know, we've got sort of weekend warriors, uh, myself included, that may go out and do some things that we don't normally do and we're not really in good shape to do. We end up hurting ourselves. And uh, that's a little bit different, you know, picture. So. Kevin, always good with a question. That's a really, really good question that uh, is common, when, particularly this time of year when you're watching football. We're going to go to Les from Meridian. Good morning, Les. Morning, Doctor Jimmy. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. So my question. So my question is, um, I'm taking Manjaro for type two diabetes, and you know it comes with its abdominal effects. And so mm-hmm. my question is that. Over the last several days, um, I've been having an increased difficulty going to the bathroom and to the point where I, I can't tell if I have, I know I'm constipated, but I can't tell. And I, I also have a history of diverticulitis. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like diverticulitis, but... I can't tell if I have something that is potentially more serious. Um, And so I have a a considerable amount of pain in my lower abdomen pressing on my bladder. And I know that this is a fairly, you know, the whole, this whole issue is fairly common with Ozempic and both Mongero. But when does it get more serious where I potentially may need to go see my provider uh, to get more advanced studies or something like that? Yeah, excellent question, Les. And uh, abdominal pain is very difficult sometimes to figure out what's causing that um, just because because of the way the nerves sort of develop in the stomach. And they can tend to point to things, having pain in one location may not actually be the location that the problem's in because it sort of gets referred to different places in your admin. However, by what you – and your description was great, by the way. That was really good. Um, I I think that this probably sounds more like constipation-type pain um, due to decreased transit in the, um, in the lower intestine, mainly because of the location and the fullness that you're feeling. Uh, that tends to be around the same – same place and then also can be you know have pressure on your bladder as well now manjaro and several other as you as you mentioned and pointed out that several of the other uh medications used to treat diabetes and for weight loss um they can have a number of side effects and because they mainly work in the in the intestines and abdomen they sort of slow transit down of food so you're you feel um fuller they act on a, a hormone called glp1 that um, it stimulates the body to say, hey, I'm full. I'm not eating anymore. So most people, you know, don't don't eat that way. It typically they can do a number of things in the abdomen. So you can have just sort of general abdominal pain or bloating uh, with it. The most common side effect, though, is diarrhea and not constipation. Um, so that that is a little bit different from what you described. 
But what I would do is sort of go ahead and treat for constipation. And unless you have, you might want to check with your physician about that with any other medications that you're taking, but it should be fairly safe to take some over-the-counter uh, Miralax. Uh, Miralax is a powder of uh, a powdered substance. You can mix it in with any type of uh, of liquid that you want, water, whatever. Sometimes they make them that are, you know, people sometimes say, I don't want to drink anything unless it's got some taste to it. So some of them have a little bit of a taste to it or a flavoring. But it is uh, polyethylene glycol. It's not antifreeze. But um, but basically it's a substance that ho- that pulls water toward it. So it's an osmotic agent. And that just keeps water in the large intestine enough that you're going to loosen up that stool and allow it to pass. So it's not something that you can uh, necessarily absorb. It doesn't. It's not one of the the laxatives that you can get sort of used to. Uh, some t- some of those sort of stimulate your body to do that. I would do a, cu- a a cap full of that. The directions will say just one cap full in in eight ounces of water. Make sure you're getting plenty of water throughout the day. Try that for a day or two. See if that doesn't stimulate things. If you haven't gone to the bathroom or you're having hard stools for more than about four days, that's the point where I would call your doctor and say, hey, can I come in? There are lots of other things that can cause pain. You mentioned a couple like diverticulitis. That's where you have little out out pockets, little dead end streets, if you want to think about that, in the large intestine. And um, they can uh, be inflamed and have bacterial overgrowth in those areas. And uh, diverticulosis is just having those little blind dead end streets that sort of are out pockets from the large intestine. Diverticulitis is when those get infected, and you typically have to take a course of antibiotics for those. That can be more of a a left lower quadrant, so the left-hand side of your abdomen, uh, your left, not mine. And um, and it can uh, you sometimes you can even feel a mass over there, but typically it's on the left hand side. You can have right sided, but it's a little less common. And sometimes you'll even have fever with that and you'll have painful bowel movements when you do have them. But that's a little different in how it presents. And then sometimes some people are at more risk of having a bowel infarction where you lose blood supply to that uh, segment. That typically is in people who already have uh, cardiovascular disease and maybe some atherosclerosis and other vessels. So typically if I have a patient, had a patient one time, she was uh, in her 70s and already had diabetes, hypertension. She had had a couple of stents in her heart. She had her carotid arteries going to her head that were that were uh, had some blockage there. So she presented with bloody diarrhea, left lower quadrant pain, and and um, uh, acute you know really pain every time she ate. So it would be right when she ate because when you eat, you shunt blood to that that portion of the intestine. Um, so that is a whole lot different. Certainly, this doesn't sound like symptom wise what you're having, but it sounds like it's probably what we call functional constipation, which should, um, it should in most cases, um, um, have a good outcome taking that Miralax. All right. Very good, Dr. Jimmy. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. We do appreciate it. A lot of people are really big on probiotics or, uh, prebiotics, 
or uh, postbiotics. Most people haven't heard of that last one, but there is a thing. So that has to do with the, the gut biome. So we have a lot of different bacteria that hang out in our intestines, and uh, they're supposed to do that. They help us break down food. They help us absorb certain nutrients. And they have what we're discovering. It's sort of an unknown uh, part of the body that we're just now learning a lot about. A lot of people will take some probiotics, um, which is basically uh, preparations of bacteria that you ingest in pill form. Or you can, you know, a lot of them like the lactobacillus and um, or acidophilus and live culture um uh, yogurt can, is another way you can do it. But there's a lot of other ones, too. I, I would be careful with that. A lot of people ask me all the time, can I take this? Would it improve my bowel function? Maybe. The problem is most of the good bacteria, with the exceptions of those things like lactobacillus and acidophilus, they purely want to live where there's no oxygen. So in your in your intestines, there's like, particularly lower intestine, there's not any oxygen in there inside the, the bowel uh, lumen, the interior of it. And once you introduce oxygen to that, they die. Uh, so in the preparation of those and the delivery into your body, it's really hard to do that in a way that helps preserve those good bacteria. You can get some. Uh, and prebiotics is just the the... Um, that's a fancy thing for just what are the things that are going to promote good bacterial growth. So it's what they like to eat, basically, and what they do well on. So it's almost like bacterial vitamins, if you want to think of it that way. To be honest, fruits and vegetables, that's what bacteria like. If you think about it, when you eat more fruits and vegetables, people typically will say, you know, I'm much more regular and uh, they have not, you know, that's one another way just because of the insoluble fiber uh, that you ingest that things sort of transit easier through there. And they may have increased gas production. Well, that's because those bacteria are doing their job of breaking all that stuff down. And then uh, postbiotics are like there's uh, what what are those bacteria on the um, on the uh tail end, so to speak, of uh, of production. So those bacteria that are already dead, but do they still do certain things? And again, they research sort of early on that, um, but there's a lot of great research in this area that is finding all kinds of connections. We know the gut biome is related to the development of the immune system and, uh, and maintaining a healthy immune system which may be one reason why when you eat a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables, why that improves your overall immune system and health. It's because of that interaction with some of those bacteria. Fascinating area of science. This is Southern Remedy. Let's go to Molly. Good morning, Molly. This is Molly. Yes, ma'am. You are on the air with Dr. Jimmy. What's your question this morning? Well, um, when I have my blood work done, there's abbreviations that I don't know what they are, what they mean. Sure. And I've got one called a BUN, B-U-N. Yep. Can you tell me anything about that? Yes, yes. A BUN, or B-U-N, usually in all caps, um, that stands for blood urea nitrogen. So one of the tests, and there's not just one that's like can test the, how, the, how things function, but one of the tests that we use in conjunction with a number of other tests to, to see how well your kidneys are working is the, the BUN, or blood urea nitrogen. So that is a measure of urea 
that the kidneys normally filter out. And all things being equal, if you're well hydrated, if everything's going okay, that's at a, a fairly um, uh, constant rate depending on uh, your height and your, you know, it can be sort of an inference of your kidney function. It's not the best thing. The main thing that we use it for in conjunction with the creatinine, and then there are some other labs, and these are blood tests, uh, like you mentioned, but there's, uh, then we can combine that sometimes with some urine tests as well. And then if you want to get really fancy, and there's some, those are sort of our normal screening tests. There's some other things that we look at uh, to try to determine if there's problems in the kidneys, like electrolytes. There are substances that are normally filtered out. They're a little bit harder to test, like cystatin C. But um, it's BUN is a common one on blood work uh, that we get. If it's elevated, it could be that you were just fasting overnight for your labs. If it's mildly elevated, um, typically it's it's you know they'll give you a range for all of these, and every lab's a little bit different in that. If it's more than about two times the normal limit then the upper upper range, then that, that might be an issue that they want to look at in conjunction with other things. But that that's what the BUN is. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. If it's low, is there a problem? No problem with it being low. Usually if you're more petite or have decreased muscle mass, um, that could be it. Or it may be something related to your diet. But if it's low and everything else looks fine, it's usually not a problem. Incidentally, children typically have lower... BUNs that sometimes flag out even on their labs, and it's not really a big deal. Okay, and what about MCV? Ooh, that's another one that always like can sneak out the normal range. MCV is a measure uh, of how big your uh, volume of your red blood cells. Those are the bl- blood cells that carry oxygen. So it stands for mean cellular volume, okay? So each red cell has a certain calculated volume that they that they calculate out, and then they take that sort of the mean or the average of that. Uh, so that, that number, if you are anemic, can sometimes help differentiate the different types of anemia. If you're not anemic, if you're hemoglobin or you're hematocrit, and that's usually the de- the um, abbreviations for those are for hemoglobin, it's HGB, and for hematocrit, HCT. If those two are in the normal range, then MCV is not as useful. If it's high, it can point you towards some uh, lots of different things. Uh, it, it, you might have B12 deficiency, for instance, or folate deficiency. If it's low, that usually, and you're anemic, that goes along with iron deficiency anemia. But if those, if that hemoglobin and hematocrit are normal, that's not a problem. Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you, doctor. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Timothy in Mississippi. Good morning, Timothy. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you for calling. Uh, I suffer from PTSD. Hmm. I, I lost a identical twin 12 years ago in a hunting accident. It gets very inflammated around the holidays. Sure. Uh, I see him every day in his identical twin surviving brother. So it's I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that. So yeah. I, I was listening to this show. It is actually quite intriguing, and uh, thought I'd call. 
That, well, first of all, Timothy, thank you for sharing that. I know that, uh, you know, just thinking about the circumstances and everything that you've been dealing with and, and for 12 years, uh, that is PTSD is a incredibly um, tough thing to deal with. And I thank you for your courage to call and share that with people, because a lot of people, other people may have the same kind of thing. Uh, let me yeah. ask you a question first. Have you ever sought treatment for this with, a, say, a psychologist or psychiatrist? Yes, I do. Okay. I do. I, I, I think I have every month for 12 years. Yeah, yeah. That's twice a month. And, uh, you know, it's something that really never goes away. Right. I think with a, being an identical twin, it's quite another phase of challenges there. Um, but it's, uh, it's hard to understand and digest. And maybe if I can ask you these things and help somebody else, that will bless my day. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it is a hard thing because of the, the triggers that can – and it might be, you know, sort of person, people, places, and things. And you're right, when in an identical twin situation – um, it's hard to get away. You can't get away from it. And even if it's not with somebody who is close to you, there are little things, sometimes what people say, sometimes it's circumstance. Holidays, typically we think about holidays when the people that, um, you know, our friends and family that we're around, when they're not there, it can trigger this too. Um, and some of those triggers you can't get away from, like the mirror, like in your case. Um, but you can learn some techniques that can sort of deprogram the brain over time and at least lessen those. And, um, it's, you know, I tell you who's, who's done the most research and has the most, um, success with this is the VA, um, uh, particularly in dealing with, with war related PTSD, but you don't have to, it does, it's not specific to that. So any kind of traumatic loss, or traumatic event can can trigger these things. I have a few patients that you know they one in, one in particular I'm thinking about was a Vietnam uh, veteran, and he still has problems with it. In fact, his wife knows not to approach him, you know, from behind uh, without making some noise and sort of going down the hallway and and uh, you know tapping on the wall uh, to make sure he knows you know he can he knows that so. But I, I would say, Timothy, particularly since you know there are certain times when it's worse, is to sort of intensify what you've been working with with your with your team, you know, to try to avoid some of those. And if you can't avoid them, to those triggers, if you can't, some of the techniques to try to uh, get your your brain sort of re focused in a way that you can deal with that. And one of the ways you can deal with that is with, you know, other people. Um, I know a lot of people are successful with having people that they reach out to during those times and can do things with that are different enough that sort of provide those positive social interactions. And the other thing that, that I've, you know, you see a lot with PTSD is the guilt um, because in some ways it is, well, in a lot of, in every way, it's debilitating for what you're doing, uh, the other things that you're doing when these episodes happen. However, 
a lot of people will feel guilt because they don't want, they feel like in some ways the person, uh, in your case, that died, um, that that's somehow um, doing something negatively towards them. Um, but I, you know, I remind my patients, and I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a, a psychologist, but I do remind them from time to time look, I, you know, most of the time, this person would not want you to be going through this and would want you to remember the good things and be having a life that's productive and, and not impacted by this. So, I, you know, Timothy, I, I, I thank you again for, for sharing this, but I think it's just going to have to be going back to those things that, that your therapist or your psychiatrist has been, you know, doing uh, with you over time to try to do that. I, and I, you know, I tell people, look, if you're not getting anywhere with that, sometimes it's just not the right fit um, between the person that you're seeing, whether that's a psychologist or a psychiatrist. It's OK to reach out to somebody else or to ask them to provide somebody else that you can see that you'd feel comfortable with or there's a better fit there sometimes because that is important. Well, thank you. I appreciate your show. And first time I've actually heard it, I was driving home from. Jackson, visiting my three beautiful grandkids for the holidays, and I, uh, you know, I just, it's uh, it's a challenge day to day. Um, holidays are very challenging. Uh, my, uh, it was a hunting accident, and the surviving twin, I'll be, I'll be, he loves the woods. That's how he connects to his brother. Mm, right. Uh, and and I. I I will go hunting with him this weekend. I don't kill anything anymore. I just go out for therapy. Uh, right. You know, we look. We, I guess each of us look for our own ways to relieve these things in life. You're right, and everybody deals with it in different ways. And sometimes it's just a matter of. Um, I think sometimes people are they mean well and say, "Hey, you just need to do this. This works for me." But I think we all need to be sensitive that sometimes that doesn't work for another person. It may work great for you, um, but you just sort of have to find that for yourself. We all have to be transparent. Yes. Absolutely. What a great show. I appreciate you, and Happy New Year to you. And I might call back sometime. Please do, Timothy. And uh, you hang in there, and uh, you try to connect in those ways that are that are good for you. We're going to go to John all the way down in Daphne, Louisiana, or Louisiana, other state, Alabama. Sorry about that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, good to hear from you, Dr. Jimmy. Um, I, let's see, on my uh, right foot, I, the large toe has developed uh, an ingrowth. I mean, it's an ingrown toenail. Mm-hmm. And um, my efforts to try and ease the situation to persuaded to grow out, I think I've only made it worse. And I'm ready to go to the urgent care to find out what to do about it, because uh, there are a lot of things that I can't do if I can't walk around uh, with both legs. Um, It's not really terribly painful, but it depends on the situation. If I bump my foot, yeah, it really hurts. Um, Do you recommend going to one of those urgent care places to deal with this or uh, is there something I could do? Yeah, it's. I, I think you're at the. It sounds like you're at the point now where some of the things you could do at home may actually make it worse. Um, uh-huh. 
it it all comes down to somebody who feels comfortable with doing that because there's different things to do uh, in a stepwise process and you want to avoid you know surgery to the last if all the other ones sort of fail there's actually a couple of ways of that they can brace the nail so in other words you coax it by putting something on top of it or glue it so that it's sort of pulling it out of that nail gutter Um, A simple one is using pieces of cotton to do that. And you sort of place those cotton up underneath in that, you know, that that um, where the nail is growing out um, and are growing into that. If you can get a little a couple of pieces of cotton in there, that can help sort of make it, you know, turn back up. But if those don't work at that point, you're dealing with, you know, surgical excision of at least partial uh, a partial amount of the nail would be the way to take care of it. Sounds terrible, particularly when you're already having pain, but actually the toe is pretty easy to numb up. And um, the surgery itself, most people feel good in a couple of weeks and they can get back out doing what they're doing. It can recur with any of these treatments, but I would just, if you're going to urgent care, I think that's fine. I would call and say, hey, do y'all have somebody there that normally takes care of feet of ingrown toenails? Um, And just ask them that because i think most people are pretty honest about yeah i can do that or yeah i can't and a lot of the the um, urgent care clinics they they may or may not have people staffed the same every time so in other words they may have different people coming in but just call and ask because some people will say nope i don't do feet and that's just going to be a wasted trip the other person that can help you out is a podiatrist and podiatrist are very well trained I use a lot of podiatrists, particularly with more severe ingrown toenails. So you might want to call around and see if anybody could see you from that standpoint. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, uh, John, for for calling. I'm losing all pronunciation this morning. Sorry about that. All right. We're going to go to Judy from Tupelo. Good morning, Judy. Hello. I was calling uh, to say something about the kidney function. Yeah. Uh, you you can get a pro-renal vitamin. Uh, my nurse practitioner put me on one, and uh, so far everything's been good. Is that for, like, uh, urinary tract infections, or is that for kidney no, function? No, no, it's just kidney function. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah there, there's not a lot of science in that. I have seen those out there. I tell my patients, you know, just let me see the ingredients first, and most of the time they're fine. But there really hasn't been any any prospective trials that show that it included uh, that it improved function in kidneys um, by itself. Again, perfectly fine to take. A lot of vitamins get filtered out by the kidney, and they're not such a bad idea if you have a deficiency. But um, it's you know if you already have some kidney decline, it's probably not going to have a big impact. Now, drinking plenty of fluids can, you know, to try to not get dehydrated, those kinds of things. But certainly not going to hurt you. But, it, you know, I just would caution people to say, hey, my doctor said I had mild kidney failure. Maybe I need to go take this vitamin. It, it probably not going to hurt you, but you want to be careful with that, particularly as your kidney function declines. Well, she put me on it, so my nurse practitioner did. I just didn't go out and get it. Sure. Uh, yeah. And then I got got it through Amazon, and it's called Pro Renal. Yeah. But another another comment I want to say about the toe, about the ingrown toenail. Uh huh. I had I had both of mine done. One of them I had done in the office, and when he started on it, I, I thought I said I thought you were going to deaden it first, and that's what he was doing. That hurts like the dickens. <laughs> Put a needle in the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
so the next one, I had them put me to sleep. Oh, wow. <laughs> I wasn't going to yeah. do that again. Right, yeah. So uh, they may do that anyway now. I don't know. But some people boy, do. And, it hurt. Yeah, some people do and some don't. It just sort of depends. So, Well, Judy, thank you for calling, and uh, we sure do appreciate you listening and calling in today. Let's go to Don from Edwards. Good morning, Don. Good morning. I was calling. Real thank you for my call. I was calling because I had a concern about a medication called Therial Sulfate three twenty five. Yeah, it's iron. Yeah, iron is iron supplement. Okay, I was taking this two times a day. I was taking it, and it's and it's, it's made you have diarrhea real, real bad. Yeah, I start taking. And how, how continuous is this supposed to continue? Long that taken or what? Uh, it can be short term. So typically people take that when they do have iron deficiency anemia or lower iron levels. And sometimes you can get those back up and then you can stop taking it. It's an easy test for them to, like a blood test, to check for the levels to make sure they're back up. The other thing is if you're losing it continually, like if you got a slow leak in your gut or your, your uh, body is consuming uh, red blood cells uh, in some way, then that's that's a, an indication you're probably going to have to take it a little bit longer. There are some other ways to take it. That's a very common side effect. So GI side effects are the number one side effect with taking iron. Some people have cramping. Some people even have constipation with it. But um, I would I would ask your doctor if it's okay to take it every other day. That may sound crazy, but in yeah. a lot of people, taking it every other day will cut the symptoms back. I thought about that, but I, I heard you talking about this. The GI that this day, the day before I just wanted to check and see. So. Right, right. Yeah, that sounds good. Sounds, uh, sounds good. All right, Don. Thank you for calling. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, we're going to go to John from Mississippi. Good morning, John. Good morning. Go ahead, John. we got about a little less than two minutes. My question is, I've... I, I think I've got a prostate, swollen prostate. I'm having problems urinating, and sometimes I frequently urinate, and it's not much, and it's not a very powerful stream, I guess you would say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, there's something like prostatitis. I've been trying to read up on it a little bit, what's going on with myself, and and I just want your opinion on it. Sure. Yeah, a couple of different things that could be going on. Any type of enlargement in the prostate can cause those type of symptoms where you have urinary retention and you might have, you know, not emptying out your bladder from that. It can be from just the prostate as we get older. It can get larger and larger. Um, that typically isn't an infection. But if you do have prostatitis where you have an infection in the prostate itself, most people will have some other symptoms with that. They'll have some more of pain than just the urinary symptoms that you described, or they'll have a burning when they urinate. Um, it is in the office, there's a way to check the prostate that can sort of differentiate between those two. But if it's the pain part of it, it's actually fairly easy to treat with an antibiotic. It's probably not going to get better without the antibiotic. Um, but um, that may be something that you need to be seen. You know, they can do a urine test. Sometimes it'll show, show up on that with the infection, or uh, they may want to do a PSA just to make sure it's not really elevated. But those would be the two things that um, that I would say that you probably need to get checked for. Yes, sir. Is there anything to do about it that they can do about a pulling the prostate? Um, not well. It depends on the cause. Depends on the cause, but they're going to know better once you go to the doctor to see about that. 
Well, that's all the time. That's all the time. I'm sorry to cut you off there. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.